It's Thursday, May 5th, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, I went a bit rogue. Instead of a handful of different stories and segments like usual, today I have just one supersized one for you. I got kind of carried away diving into this and didn't realize how long it was, and I do think it's really interesting, so I hope you do too, uh, with slight apologies and a promise for lots of different stories in all directions tomorrow. Here is a deep dive into the question of whether pop culture has become completely dominated by franchises and the same superstars, and if so, how new that phenomenon actually is, and if it's really such a bad thing in the end. So here is, well, one cool thing for your ride home. Like millions of other people around the world, tonight I am going to see Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness, the 28th feature-length installment in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. 28th. And that's not including all the new TV shows or, you know, the comic books. With franchises like Marvel, DC, and Star Wars dominating box offices and reboots of old TV shows getting greenlit one after the other, it's easy to feel like no one knows how to make an original movie or show anymore. Maybe that's one of the many legitimate reasons that everything, everywhere, all at once is so popular right now. You know, people see its originality as a breath of fresh air. Although, even that genuinely original film, it's not a book adaptation or sequel or franchise, it is riffing on an increasingly popular concept of the multiverse. And maybe it's not surprising that the multiverse is so popular right now when so much of our media feels like the multiverse. Endless spin-offs, sequels, reboots, covers, and re-releases. The media we're consuming is starting to feel like a buffet platter of alternate timelines. But how true is that statement? To what extent is our media more of the same now compared to in the past? Was the past more original? Researcher and comedian Adam Mastriani recently dug into this in his Experimental History newsletter with some hard data and interesting interpretations. Now, I will say right at the jump here that I'm personally a fan of extended universes, sequels, reimaginings, ensemble cast and crew working together in endless configurations. I have personally never been one to judge something just because it's the third adaptation of a classic story in as many years, or the fourth sequel in a franchise. If I liked the first one, I might like another version of it. And despite the common cynical sentiment about things like reboots and sequels, I think a lot of people are like me as well. I mean, certainly hardcore fans are. All you have to do is look at fanfiction websites and see the tens of thousands of different ways people have imagined beloved characters meeting and falling in love to know that when people like certain characters or a certain story enough, it will almost never get old to them, no matter how many different creators take a shot at their version of the core story. And in general, at least before today, I would have said there's nothing particularly new about this. So much of our media has always been riffs on classic tales and legends, retellings of history. For example, William Shakespeare wrote roughly 37 plays during his lifetime, and of that 37, exactly two were original works. Two, The Tempest and Love's Labor's Lost. All of the other 35 were pulled from history, legend, medieval story collections, and even the plays of other recently popular writers. 
But from the data Mastriani pulled together, it does seem like over the last decade or so, there has actually been less original work from less individual artists rising to the top. Or as he puts it, quote, a smaller and smaller cartel of superstars is claiming a larger and larger share of the market. What used to be winners take some has grown into winners take most and is now verging on winners take all. The very silly word for this is oligopoly like Monopoly, but with a few players instead of just one, end quote. And I will add here that Mastriani is a postdoctoral research scholar at Columbia Business School and recently published a paper about how people tend to overestimate how much public opinion has really changed over the last 50 years. So he's got a solid backing in this kind of analysis and checking his own biases. And before I get into the nitty-gritty of his data, I also just want to share one more readily available stat to set the stage here. In 2021 in the United States, of the top 10 highest-grossing films, there was only one that was an original film. All nine others were part of franchises or sequels. Just one, and it was Ryan Reynolds' Free Guy. And in fact, even if you expand to the top 20 highest-grossing films in the U.S. last year, you only get one more original film. Encanto. The rest are book adaptations, sequels, reboots, or based on a Disneyland theme park ride. That in itself is a pretty strong argument for movies being less original these days. But Mastriani didn't just look at 2021. He went all the way back to 1977 and was able to show a huge uptick in the proportion of non-original films starting in the year 2000. And he's been pretty modest with his definition of what he and other film scholars call a multiplicity, by the way. Like, he counted the first Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles as basically an original, even though it was based on comics, but he counted the sequel as a multiplicity. So really, the situation may be even more stark than his data presents. And his data shows that prior to the year 2000, about a quarter of top-grossing movies were multiplicities. But since 2010, he says, it's been more than half every year, and in the last few years, it's been almost 100%. That's huge. And it's not just movies. In television, looking at the top 30 most viewed TV shows from 1950 to 2019, there's been a steady decline in the number of franchises ruling the airwaves. That is, countless versions of CSI and Law & Order or spin-offs and reboots are dominating. Now, there is probably an undercounting of streaming television going on here, but not by quite as much as you might think. And in music, the number of different artists in the Billboard Hot 100 has been declining since the 70s. It even expands to books. For most of the 20th century, it was unusual for an author to have multiple books in the top 10 bestseller list in the same year. But for the past three decades, it's happened almost every year. And the percentage of authors making those top 10 lists that all already had a prior book in the top 10 lists and are therefore already famous has been increasing as well, from about half in the 50s to three quarters today. Even in video games, three quarters of best-selling video games since 2005 have been franchise installments. It's not a drastic change from the mid-90s, but there was definitely a shift somewhere around 2005. I mean, looking at all of the graphs Mastriani put together, it's pretty damning. But why might this be happening? Mastriani has a few theories. One interesting one is what he calls the invasion of software, the internet, and I would add hardware. Creating and sharing art, especially film, music, and video, is 
technically easier than ever before. So, Mastriani argues, media giants therefore choose to produce and promote properties that independent creators could never pull off. Stuff like CGI-heavy Marvel films. Now, this is a little similar to the reasoning for why TV started getting more and more film-like, higher and higher budgets, as cable TV and then streaming got more popular. You know, TV used to just be TV, and movies were watched at a cinema or as a separate activity, you know, more intentionally putting a tape into a VCR, not just passively flicking through channels. But once movies were on TV channels too, it became a lot easier for audiences at home to flick the channel and suddenly be watching Titanic. To keep audiences hooked on TV shows, the TV shows had to up their production value to compete with Hollywood films. So to get someone to actually go to the theater, or even just pick out a movie on Netflix instead of a video on YouTube, production companies might think that they need to make movies that no indie crew on the internet could possibly achieve. Now, there's also the fact that so many property holders have consolidated. Movie studios, TV networks, major publishing companies, music labels, they're all starting to be owned by the same select few. And that means more brand cohesion and safety and less creativity. And on the consumer side, Mastriani argues we might be leaning towards a lot of the same things as a result of decision fatigue. With so many options, it's cognitively easier to pick something with a familiar actor or that's a sequel or spinoff to something you know you already liked. He wrote, quote, Another way to think about it, more opportunities means higher opportunity costs, which could lead to lower risk tolerance. When the only way to watch a movie is to go pick one of the seven playing at your local AMC, you might take a chance on something new. But when you've got a million movies to pick from, picking a safe, familiar option seems more sensible than gambling on an original. And this could be happening across all of culture at once. Movies don't just compete with other movies. They compete with every other way of spending your time. And those ways are both infinite and increasing. There are now 60,000 free books on Project Gutenberg. Spotify says it has 78 million songs and 4 million podcast episodes. And Humanity uploads 500 hours of video to YouTube every minute. So, yeah, the Tom Hanks movie sounds good. End quote. Author G.D. Dess argued in a piece last month in the Los Angeles Review of Books that this onslaught of content additionally makes us feel like we're actually consuming a lot of new and original content when, in fact, as Mastriana's data highlights, most of it is just an amalgam of what Dess calls pre-existing cultural artifacts. Dess wrote, quote, we are living in hauntological times, a stagnant period in which the past is being plundered and it seems impossible that the future will ever arrive. We've stopped moving forward dialectically. We're deluded into thinking the culture is advancing and not endlessly eddying. That something is happening, because the media, in all its different manifestations, relentlessly presents us with something new. Our constant exposure to media objects, the rush of text and images, produces the impression that something is happening. There's always something new to be seen, some story to follow, something for us to be up on. Most of us who stay tuned in believe that we know what's going on, that we're abreast of the latest cultural phenomena, that we're ahead of the game, that we're winning. We watch the latest Netflix movies and Amazon Prime 
crime series and quality TV. We might also listen to edgy podcasts. Some of us have signed up for all the alternative and literary substacks that come our way. There is so much new, it's impossible to keep up. End quote. And Des goes on to list similar stats to Mastriani. 1.3 billion YouTube users watching 300 hours of video uploaded every minute, 50,000 new songs uploaded to Spotify every day, 15,000 films on Netflix. Des's point, though, is a bit more complex. That ruling classes of capitalism have annihilated the possibility of an avant-garde, and that there can be no truly new and original art that moves culture forward without an avant-garde. Now, I won't quite get into all of that here, but his article is linked in the show notes if you want to read it for yourself. Now, where Des really dovetails with Mastriani, though, is in pointing out that this eternal remixing isn't entirely new. Now, while myself and Mastriani might point way back to the Renaissance and ancient times, Des argues that the trouble really began with the rise of the commodity economy in the early to mid-20th century. But what might actually be new, however, is the incredible velocity of technically unoriginal content over the last decade in particular. And I don't know that I'm ready to get quite as cynical as Des does with regards to this all being bad news for art and society and our future. I mean, I certainly don't like seeing so many studio and company consolidations happening. I would love to see smaller artists surfacing across all media more, and more weird, less brand-safe art being experimented with that can break through into the mainstream more often. But I like where Mastriani ultimately lands. Quoting again, some may think that the rise of the pop oligopoly means the decline of quality, but the oligopoly can still make art. Red Dead Redemption 2 is a terrific game, Blinding Lights is a great song, and Toy Story 4 is a pretty good movie. And when you look back at popular stuff from a generation ago, there was plenty of dreck. We've forgotten the pulpy westerns and insipid romances that made the bestseller lists, while books like The Great Gatsby, Brave New World, and Animal Farm did not. American Idol is not so different from the televised talent shows of the 1950s. Popular culture has always been a mix of the brilliant and the banal, and nothing I've shown you suggests that the ratio has changed. End quote. In other words, it's not that the quality is necessarily worse, Mastriani says, but that there is less variety at least in terms of what dominates the mainstream, of what rises to the top, or what can be easily discovered. One commenter on this piece brought up an excellent point about algorithms, just feeding us more and more of what each of us punitively wants, making it more and more difficult to actively seek out something different and unique. But if you do, you may discover what Mastriani calls the vibrant anarchy at the bottom, far below the oligopolized top of the charts. He concludes, quote, Every strange thing, wonderful and terrible, is available to you, but they'll die out if you don't nourish them with your attention. Finding them takes some foraging and digging, and then you'll have to stomach some very odd, unfamiliar flavors. That's good. Learning to like unfamiliar things is one of the noblest human pursuits. It builds our empathy for unfamiliar people, and it kindles that delicate, precious fire inside us. Without it, we might as well be algorithms. Humankind does not live on bread alone, nor can our spirits long survive on a diet of reruns. End quote.
Well, thank you to all of you who stuck around to the end here for indulging me today. I've never done a one-note show before on this podcast, and even though it wasn't intentional, it was kind of fun. I definitely won't make a habit of it, but, you know, maybe I'll do it again sometime. Tomorrow, though, lots more across different topics. And so that will be it from me for today. This show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.